Hello, and welcome to the Trillion Dollar Triage episode of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of, oh my God, what a week this has been. I am Felix Hammond of Axios. I'm here with Emily Peck of Axios. Hello. And we are joined this week by the perfect guest for this week. If you are going to listen to one money podcast in a week where war broke out in Europe, it should be it should be this one because we have with us Nick Timoros from the Wall Street Journal. Welcome, Nick. Thanks for having me, Felix and Emily. Nick, introduce yourself. You have a book out. Yes, I uh, cover the Federal Reserve for the Wall Street Journal, and I've written Trillion Dollar Triage, which is a book about how the Fed and really Congress and the U.S. government uh, responded decisively to uh, the economic shock of March 2020 to prevent a second Great Depression. I remember the Committee to Save the World. What was that, like 1998, something like that? And now we have it all over again with Janet Yellen, Steve Mnuchin, and of course, Jay Powell, the, the hero of your book. We're going to talk about the book. We're going to talk about inflation, how bad it is. We're going to talk about how the Fed deals with it, what the Fed's going to do, how it's going to do it. But mostly, of course, we have to talk about Russia invading Ukraine and all of the implications of that. We even have a Slate Plus segment on the money markets, which managed to seize up in 2020, much as they did in 2008. There's a lot of nerding out about monetary policy here, but trust me, it's a good one. Stay tuned. It's all coming up on Slate Money. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Obviously, the thing we need to start with is Ukraine, which is at war. There is a major war going on in Eastern Europe right now. Noah Smith says it's the end of basically 70 years worth of at least people paying lip service to the principles of international law and cooperation and this kind of thing. It seems like a pretty big deal. We should talk about it. Emily. You're at the nerve hub of Axios, which is covering this from every single a angle. So what's the what's the big picture from where you are? Well, I mean, the big picture from where I am, we're mostly focused on the economic impacts, which obviously lives are at stake here. Russia has invaded Ukraine from all sides. Um, I think the death toll is up to like 170 as we're recording. Well, the Ukrainians have come out and said that they've killed like 3,000 Russians in the first 36 hours, which is probably an exaggeration, but even if it's 10 times the reality, like this is huge death toll in like for a completely inexplicable war, which makes no sense to anyone. Unprovoked. Yeah. This is Putin's folly, essentially. Um, what, what we were looking at at Axios is the market's reaction, the sanctions. Basically, um, on Thursday, Biden, with the rest of the Western world, tried to cut Russia's economy off from everyone else, from the U.S. banking system, from Western Europe, Except et for 
the bits that matter. They carved out these two massive exceptions for energy and for agriculture, which is the overwhelming majority of all of Russia's exports. And they're like, yeah, we're going to cut you off, except for we're going to continue to pay you for all of your energy and agricultural exports, which kind of seems, Nick, like it's defeating the purpose. Do you think these sanctions matter? Well, they matter. I mean, you raise a good point. I think the challenge right now is is you don't want to aggravate a pretty serious uh, inflation problem and, you know, declining real incomes in Europe with, uh, you know, o- overdoing it. So let's take this as a starting place and see once we get through the winter, whether there's probably more room to escalate from here. There was also some question I was reading about you know, whether they were expecting just an invasion of the eastern part of Ukraine or full-scale assault. And the first round of sanctions may have been calibrated for, you know, less provocation than what we got. So let's see how things play out over the next week here. Yeah, I mean, the key to the sanctions is the the coordination with Europe. And I think there was a lot of pushback about on, on energy sanctions from Europe, which is already seeing higher energy costs right now, as we all are. Um, and you saw, like, to, on Friday, uh, gas prices going down a bit because they didn't go that far yet. But I think the administration has said they might. This is the American administration, which, you know, n- needs to get consensus on this. And specifically, it needs to get the Germans on board. And this is the big one of the big um, sort of geopolitical decisions here is how much do you care about standing up for Ukraine and the principles of international law versus how much do you care about energy prices domestically because if europe were to cut off russia from being able to sell energy to europe that would 100% hurt russia but it would also 100% hurt europe and it would send energy prices in europe which are already at incredible historic highs much much higher we don't know how much but it would really hurt virtually every single person in europe and around the world because you know, all of these things are commodities and on some level they're fungible. And if natural gas prices go up in one part of the world, they go go up everywhere else in the world. So that's, you know, it's interesting. It's like how much pain, economic pain, is the world willing to impose on itself in order to punish the Russians? Yeah, that's exactly that's exactly it. We know that the US and, and allies aren't willing to actually put boots on the ground in in Ukraine, like Biden has said, we're not going in there. So then the question is, um, like, what kind of punishment are you going to do? And how much of the cost of that punishment are we going to take on ourselves? And kind of looks like right now, not a lot. Like, there's a lot of tough talk and the sanctions will hurt Russia. And the Russian markets were like destroyed on Thursday, at least and Friday, still looking really bad. But um, like the West really doesn't seem willing to take on much of the, the hurt here. Nick, we have a Fed meeting coming up. And obviously, this is going to be topic number one, they're going to say, like, we are now in a world at war. Um, How much is that going to affect the American economy? How much is the Fed going to care about that from an economic point of view? I don't think this represents a hit to to growth apart from, you know, whatever effects it may have on uh, commodity prices, energy prices, you take whatever the impact is going to be for Europe, it's going to be something less than that for the U.S. But, uh, you know, this couldn't come at a worse time for the Fed, right? Because this is a negative supply shock. And we, you know, 
if, if you look at kind of economic theory, uh, central banking textbooks say you're supposed to look past these negative supply shocks. They're a one-off. You don't want to step in to you know, crush demand if you're going to have a temporary period of higher prices at the pump. But of course, the Fed just tried ignoring a one-off last year with all of the pandemic-driven supply shocks. And it seems that didn't work very well because you now have you know, inflation with the Fed's gauge this morning is at 6%, 5% for core inflation. So I think the challenge here for the Fed is really how much longer can you deal with these sorts of escalating prices? Uh, the Fed really doesn't want to see them seep into inflation expectations. If the Fed saw evidence that inflation expectations were becoming unanchored, this is the idea that inflation is determined by what businesses and consumers expect it to be in the future. So if it were begin to really drag up uh, future expectations of inflation, that's a problem. That's kind of the, the red siren for the Fed. You don't see that right now, right? Longer term inflation expectations have moved up, but they're, they're at the levels that uh, the Fed would be comfortable with. The problem is what happens if you get into the middle of this year, the Fed had been expecting inflation to fall from say, 5 or 6% down to the 3% range by the end of the year. And what if it looks like you're just not going to get there? You're going to go at a 45 or 4%. Uh, and then you have a second year of, of labor saying, gee, maybe I should be demanding a 5 or 10% wage increase. That's, you know, that begins to get baked in. And so um, I don't love the comparisons to the 1970s. I think they're overdone. But you look at the 1973, uh, you know, oil embargo. That was a, a negative supply shock on top of a period in which inflation was already rising, and so you could see why this would raise concern. Let me just stick on inflation for a minute. We're going to talk a bit more about inflation, but you mentioned the Fed's preferred measures of inflation, and famously, when the Fed looks at inflation, it strips out energy prices. It's like energy is this very volatile commodity. We don't have a lot of control over it. So let's look at what's happening to what they call core inflation, which excludes energy. Politically speaking, in terms of the Fed's mandate for stable prices, in terms of Europe's appetite for imposing particularly harsh sanctions on Russia, in terms of the effect on election results, you know, when, when gas prices are high, um, Energy prices are really, really a big deal. They're like the one of the most, they're probably the most salient price in the economy. They're up enormously. Um, with this war, they're going, it looks, all of the indications are that they could go up a lot more, especially if the sanctions got tightened further. Um, at what point does the Fed really have to start caring about, about energy prices? Or will it just never? No, they, they have to care about energy prices Uh for exactly for the reason you lay out that it's the, it's the one thing people pay the most attention to because they put gas in their car every week they're buying eggs and bread every week um the fed looks through it not because they don't think it matters not because they don't also put gas in their cars and purchase uh bread and eggs and milk every week it's because core inflation has traditionally been a better predictor of future headline inflation than current headline inflation is but to your question, I think this is a situation where you have to pay attention to higher food and energy prices because it's when inflation expectations start to react to food and energy prices 
that you get into a danger zone for a central bank. So, you know, the problem right now is we're coming off of a year with very high inflation relative to where we've been, and you don't want to risk having it get baked into expectations of future inflation. Neil called it stagflation today. He said, um, right now we're in a period of boomflation, which I had not heard before, which is the economy is running really hot. Prices are going up, but like everything else is like kind of good and fun growing. And But now with the Ukraine war, there is going to be a decline, like Nick said, in there's supply shock, which means less stuff, less growth. At the same time, there's still inflation. So that gets you to stagflation, which I guess is declining economic growth at the same time that prices are going up, which is like a huge bummer and has echoes of the 70s, right? That seems like a bigger risk for Europe, right, than the U.S. I mean, I'm not sure that U.S. consumers you know, seeing what terrible images we're going to see over the next days and weeks, it's not going to change our decisions about whether to buy that bigger house or get the car that we haven't been able to get for the last eight months, um, notwithstanding, you know, potentially higher um, gas prices. Is this the point where I can complain about my oil bill or that's for later? You, You can totally complain about your oil bill. Was it high? It's double what it was last year. Double. It's approaching $1,000. That's crazy. I don't know. I, I imagine I'm not the only one with that with that high of a bill, right? Is that feeding into other expenditures? Like, are you saying, well, I spent so much on oil, I can't spend so much on other stuff? I mean, I'm very fortunate and lucky and, like, it feels weird to complain about one's oil bill when there's a war going on. So please don't send me hate mail. But, yeah, I mean, twice, the, a double the size of last year, it doesn't. Yeah, it makes you think twice about other expenditures, for sure. It's not like, oh, the price of eggs went up 50 cents. Like, I don't know. Most people probably don't care about that, except at the at the lower income levels. But double your oil bill, that's that's a lot. So, Nick, this is my question for you. If, if people are spending so much more money on oil and gasoline and energy broadly, does that mean that they have less money to spend on everything else? And that that means that demand goes down for everything else and that inflationary pressures elsewhere in the economy, what you might call core inflation, start to abate a bit. It's possible. But, you know, let's look at what's happening with incomes, right? Because if more people are uh, getting jobs, if more people are employed, if nominal incomes are rising, then you actually do have some mechanism to sustain higher prices. I'm sure there's a point at which, you know, the phenomenon you're describing uh, bites on the economy, but I'm not sure that we're there yet. So tell me, I mean, since you're the the great central bank observer, tell me, tell me a little bit about that that part, the, the sheer number of people out there earning money, having jobs, getting jobs. Unemployment rate is very low, but also the employment rate is still, what, 4 million or so below pre-pandemic levels. It is. If you, if you look at the prime age employment ratio, so that's 25 to 54-year-olds, it's actually quite close now to where it was before the pandemic. We're back to 2018, 2019 levels. It's a little bit above 78%. It had peaked above 79%. Um, so, you know, there's a little bit of, of room to make up there, but not a lot. And I think if you go back to last year and you look at the Fed's pivot, you know, people keep saying, well, why did the Fed change so abruptly? Did they finally just throw in the towel on their inflation forecast? And I think that's 
part of it, but only a part of it. The big change. So wait, wait, wait. So what are we talking about here? Which pivot, which change of mind? Sure. When they changed from describing inflation as transitory to saying, you know what, let's let's move faster. We're going to pull forward the end of our asset purchases. And that is really something they're doing to put themselves in a place to raise interest rates in March. So they did that uh, in November, between November and December. Uh, you know, Jay Powell came out and said, we we probably need to end the asset purchases sooner. And the reason for that goes back to the employment market. There was a rapid recovery in hiring really in the second half of last year. If you look at the unemployment rate in June, when the Fed was starting to talk about tapering or reducing its asset purchases, the unemployment rate in the U.S. was at 5.9%. It fell to 3.9% in December. To put that in context, the last time you saw a two-point decline in the U.S. unemployment rate to a level below 4% had only happened once before, and that was during the Korean War. So this was a dramatic tightening of the labor market. And yes, inflation was high. And yes, the October CPI report, which also came out in November, was um, alarmingly high. You, you, you layer that on top of the labor market. And that's really what the Fed pays attention to. They put a lot of focus on the labor market because they think that's where you see uh, slack or a lack of it. And when the labor market tightens, that's how their models really begin to say, uh, all right, resource pressure could begin to tighten here. And, uh, and so that is really what helped move them away from this idea that inflation was transitory. The, the other point I'd make is that if you look at their projections at their December Fed meeting, even though they were no longer using the word transitory to describe inflation, they were still projecting this view that inflation would basically come down on its own. They were projecting that inflation would would fall to about 3%, a little bit below 3% at the end of this year, and then down to 2% next year. And that's all happening during a period when the unemployment rate is below the level they think is consistent with stable prices. So there was still this very uh, transitory view to the inflation forecast, even though they weren't using that word anymore. And I think the big question at the March meeting is, you know, to what extent do they really uh, abandon that and signal okay, a policy needs to get restrictive. That is, we need to raise interest rates above what we estimate as some neutral equilibrium interest rate. Which, I mean, this is this is the famous thing which the wonks love to call our star and no one knows what it is. But like, if you had to guess, you know, what is the general Fed consensus on that neutral interest rate? Where, where would you put it? Well, it's confusing because the answer to your question is, nominal neutral, they think it's somewhere between 2 and 3%, right? That's what they write down in those projections that we call the dot plot. But if you look at the fine print at the bottom of those projections, that's consistent with a 2% inflation rate, right? So that would be a real uh, neutral rate of 0 to 1%. But if you think inflation is going to be at 3% at the end of the year, that means you need to get the Fed funds rate up to 3%. If you think if, if that is if you want rates to be at neutral. And if you think inflation is going to be even higher, it means you have even more work to do. So there's really two different uh, things you have to look at right now. It's where do they see inflation going and over what period of time on top of, you know, what is their estimate at neutral? Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. 
That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Nick's book makes it really clear, I think, makes a strong case that Jerome Powell was really well suited to handle the crisis of 2020. He was like a a political operator, really had all the connections um, in place to get get stuff done and to turn a crisis around. But now I wonder, is he suited for what's happening now, which is unprecedented, crazy, high inflation, like... Are his tools well-suited for the current moment? So I guess my question for you, Emily, is like, if you just looked at the current situation and asked yourself, what qualities would I want in a Fed chair, given the current situation? Putting aside the question about of, of whether Jay Powell has them or not, what kind of qualities do you think might be needed? Well, actually, I mean, he probably does have them. I think the chill qualities of not rushing to raise rates are are probably a good thing. Although some would argue, no, he should have done it already to like tame inflation. But from my perspective, chilling out, watching the unemployment rate fall, like letting the economy run hot was good. So the qualities I would want from from Jay Powell are the ability to kind of ignore <laughs> a lot of the noise and just kind of prioritize the human worker element over the inflation element. And what we definitely learn from reading Nick's book is that Powell's ability to ignore noise, um, even slash especially when it's coming out of the White House and you have Donald Trump raging against him on a daily basis, is astonishingly well-developed and pretty much unrivaled. It was water off a duck's back. So I think in that sense, he's going to be quite good at ignoring all of the noise that is coming at him from all sides and and, and trying to, um, you know, make the best decision he can on the day. But to your point, which I think is a super interesting question for Nick, with hindsight, given the amount of inflation we now have, given that inflation turns out not to have been temporary after all or transitory after all, was that in the eyes of Jay Powell or the Fed a mistake? Would they prefer now with hindsight to have started raising earlier to have started tapering earlier given their dual mandate is the amount of inflation we have basically proof that they failed at their job that's a good question you know i think if you redo 2021 this is going to sound a little apologetic but if you redo 2021 if the fed had started raising rates in say you know may (laughs) june would a would a one percent increase in the funds rate last year have really changed inflation in 2021? 
I think the answer is probably no. Would it have left them in a better position for 2022 or 2023? Then the answer is probably yes. But, you know, hindsight uh, is 2020 and they were making, you know, I, I think in macro, there are two different tribes right now. There are people who think the Fed is behind the curve. And then there are people who think the Fed is behind the curve for sensible reasons, right? I mean, everybody is pretty much in agreement that the Fed is behind here. And so if you go back to last year and people ask me, why, how did the Fed get into this position? What I would say is it helps to understand the concern they had going into the crisis that animated their whole framework review, right? This was their lower for longer. They call it flexible average inflation targeting. They had developed a new framework really before the pandemic that said the lower bound, which you talked about on your show a few weeks ago, is going to be a problem. It's going to be here. Our 2% inflation target that we adopted 10 years ago maybe didn't properly account for it because we didn't realize we were going to be spending as much time here. And when you're stuck at the lower bound more often, then you're always going to be swimming against the current of lower and lower inflation expectations. And we really don't want to do that. So the pandemic hits, it interrupts this whole review they were doing. And then in the summer of 2020, after they get, they get through the crisis, they come back and they, they return to it. And so I think the first challenge they had was they implemented this new framework that said, we want more inflation, not because we like higher inflation, but because we want to do it in the service of having a stronger labor market and getting there faster. And they had to demonstrate that this was credible, right? And I talked to Powell in, in, in the book, and he says, you know, the way that we're going to prove that it's credible is we're going to see inflation rise above 2% and say, oh, isn't that interesting? And we're not going to light our hair on fire and do something about it. The problem, of course, is, you know, jump forward to March of 2021 when the Biden administration approves a $2 trillion fiscal package. They were now trying to prove that this new framework was credible. And so they didn't show any reaction really to the, the fiscal stimulus. Layer on top of that, some of the forecasting problems that not just the Fed, but most macroeconomists had last year, the predictions that inflation would be transitory, the view that it would take a long time for the labor market to heal, uh, the view that you know the, the vaccines were going to take us back to the economy we thought we had. There weren't going to be these variants that might keep schools closed for longer, keep labor supply depressed. So those are, I think, some of the mistakes they made last year. And then, you know, the other critique that some have of Powell, perhaps, is that they've been too sensitive or concerned about sparking a taper tantrum. So they moved very carefully last year to telegraph the taper. They didn't want to rerun the taper tantrum from 2013. I think part of that reflected, you know, not just concern the 10-year treasury might spike, but you look at what happened in 2013 with the taper tantrum, it was a very violent rush of cash out of emerging market economies. And last year wasn't a time when you're trying to get the whole world vaccinated that you really wanted to risk something like that. So so add this all up. What happens in 2020? They're trying to prove their credibility to the new framework, which means you maybe have to take more inflation risk. They don't react to the fiscal stimulus. There are the forecasting errors on inflation and labor supply. And that's where you end up in October or November of last year, where the unemployment rate's dropping very quickly. And the Fed says, and Powell says, wait a minute, maybe we need to move this along a lot faster. So I want to zoom back a little bit here, because I think it's worth asking a very fundamental question, which is, it is the job of the Fed to try and keep inflation in check. It has one main tool at its 
disposal for doing that, which is overnight interest rates. Can you explain, especially in the present economy, how moving overnight interest rates up however many basis points or points will, can, should bring inflation down? Because those two things don't seem, to me at least, to be obviously connected. It seems to be a, a relatively you know, tenuous thing where you're, you're twiddling one knob over here and trying to change something over there, which is caused by, as you say, like supply constraints, Russia invading Ukraine and everything else. Yeah, the mechanism to slow the economy is to reduce hiring, right? I mean, at the end of the day, interest rate increases will at some point begin to make it harder to get a job, right? There will be fewer people employed. There will be less growth in incomes. That's the me- that's the mechanism. But but walk me through it. I I work for Axios. My my boss Jim Van der Hey is very keen on hiring people. He's out there hiring aggressively right now. Um, and then the Fed comes along and raises rates by 100 basis points. Why does that change his mind on how many people he wants to hire? Well, does the company have a lot of debt to service and does that debt roll over? And do the borrowing costs for the company begin to say, wait a minute, the money we thought we were going to put into a new factory or a, a new team of, of, of uh, podcast producers, maybe we can't do that right now. I mean, I, I like to look at the housing market. And what you've seen already, I mean, the Fed hasn't lifted off yet, but effectively they have, right? Because mortgage rates in the U.S. are a percentage point higher than they were at the end of last year. And that is because markets are forward-looking. The Fed signaled that they were going to raise rates not just once, but several times, and the market has taken that on. So at some point, the cost to purchase a home is going to go up. And people buy the house not based on, you know, this house is a half million dollars or million dollars. They buy based on how much their monthly mortgage payment is. And so the interest rate is going to change that. And for some, it's going to knock some uh, amount of buyers out of the market. Now, supplies are so constrained. Just just to be clear about this, you definitely buy this idea. And I, I have very smart friends who who definitely believe it too. I'm I'm agnostic. Um, but you buy this idea that there is a pretty strong correlation between what the Fed does in terms of overnight rates and what happens to like long-term mortgage rates. That if the Fed starts increasing the Fed funds rate, then mortgage rates are going to go up more or less a similar amount. I don't know. I, I think I'm I'm trying to explain the theory of the case. I'm not sure how bought in I am to it. I will say, I mean, they, they do have another tool right now besides the overnight interest rate, and that's their balance sheet, right? That's the $9 trillion asset portfolio. They're buying mortgage-backed securities. That's supposed to, to tighten the spread between uh, uh, the mortgage-backed securities and the 10-year treasury. That reduces the, you know, you're basically taking duration. You're taking a form of rate risk out of the market when you buy longer-dated assets like 10-year treasuries or 30-year treasury bonds or mortgage-backed securities. So, you know, doing less of that should, I don't I don't know that, you know, I, I buy it fully into this hydraulic effect, but it, you know, if there's, if there are fewer buyers of mortgage-backed securities because the Fed is buying fewer of them and soon may not be buying any and then may be putting more of them back into the market, someone else is going to have to buy, come in and buy those. The prices will change and the rate will change too. 
Isn't it just like the, if the Fed makes money more expensive, people spend less money? Yeah, I think the question right now, and, and maybe this is you know where where Felix's skepticism comes in, is it's not clear that you know one or two or three or four interest rate increases is going to do all that much, right? It may take more than that to really tighten borrowing conditions, and so I'm not suggesting that the first interest rate increase or the second interest rate increase is going to be all that meaningful. But that is the mechanism by which the Fed ultimately will slow demand. Maybe at first, it, you know, we see fewer job openings, but there still will be excess demand for hiring. We just won't have kind of the very, very elevated number we do right now. But at some point, you know, it should affect financial conditions. Uh, it could affect, you know, uh, currency markets too, and uh, especially if the U.S. is moving in a different direction from uh, the ECB. So I think my my skepticism here, and I'm I'm not completely skeptical. I, I I still believe in monetary policy to some degree. I don't think the Fed is completely powerless. Um, but the mechanism by which Fed actions feed into the economy and affect hiring and affect inflation is through, as you say, borrowing. It's like if the employer has a bunch of debt, especially if it's short-term debt and it's having to pay a bunch of interest payments every month that it didn't have to pay last month, then, you know, that's money it can't pay on salaries. The, you know, things like mortgage, mortgages are debt. And if they become more expensive, then you can't afford as much house. And that kind of activity slows down. And it's all, the, the channel there is debt. Well, it's also demand. If there, are, if there are fewer people working too, right, you're slowing, you're reducing aggregate demand or nominal incomes. Right, but the but, but but the mechanism by which you get fewer people not working is that their employers are being forced to spend more on debt repayments and therefore have less money to spend on payroll. Like, so it's it's still it's the channel is still indebted employers, and there is certainly no shortage of indebted employers out there. You know, we we've got we've had a big boom in in private equity and a bunch of. You know, public companies have been borrowing money to do stock buybacks and that kind of stuff. There is a, a large amount of debt out there, and so that, and so in that sense, I I can see how that works in theory. But debt service is so low for most companies, and for most individuals, with the exception of people who bought a house in the last few years. Um, that you know, that it feels to me that debt service on its own isn't like changing the amount of money that companies and individuals have to spend on debt service every month is going to take a long time to feed through into the economy because it's just not as big as it used to be. It's just not as it's not as high up on your on your budget, and you know, companies have a lot of things they can do to be able to absorb a rise in debt service beyond like having to stop hiring. I, f I, I think that's a really interesting argument because so often in my job, I hear people saying, oh, geez, the Fed recklessly for the last 12 years encouraged so much, you know, profligacy. There's so much debt out there that this is a house of cards and they won't even be able to raise interest rates by, you know, two percentage points because everything will just come to a screeching halt, right? So that that's kind of the other side. I'm not I don't necessarily agree with it, but I hear that argument all the time. If you look at at corporate debt as a share of GDP, it's at a record high, right? It's around 
it's true that the household balance sheet is much better than it was uh, before or after, of course, after the um, the financial crisis in 2008. So I don't worry so much about uh, you know problems from the mortgage side. Uh, even credit cards, auto loans, things like that uh, don't seem terribly alarming. But on the corporate side, you know, you had been hearing even Jay Powell talk about this in 2019. He went out and gave a big speech about, you know, the concerns you were hearing about people and and uh, leveraged loans and CLOs and things like that. And, you know, one critique of the pandemic response was, well, the Fed had to create all of these facilities to, you know, rescue the the monstrosities that they had created. I don't make that argument in the book, but I understand some people think that's what happened. Well, they kind of didn't. I mean, I feel like they created a bunch of facilities and then... The Fed did, yeah. But it was kind of droggy magic, whatever it takes, right? It was the promise, the Fed promising to do this. And people said, gee, if the Fed's going to buy a triple B corporate bond, then I'll buy it, right? I mean, that is what happened on March 23rd, 2020. And what I find interesting about that period is that there was a lot of criticism of what the Fed did there, right? You don't hear it now because the 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 criticism has moved on. We now have all this inflation. People generally regard that period, I think, as a success, the, the March-April crisis. But there were a lot of people right after the CARES Act passed who were very unhappy. They said this is a corporate bailout, that we should be, you know, uh, punishing these companies that borrowed too much, and they had zero revenue, right? Powell, you know, made a different argument. He said, "Look, this is something that we're going to use the the great fiscal power of the United States to try to get people through. We're going to build a bridge." You know, I think the concerns there really are on the back end, as I say in the book. You know, it's it's a little bit hard to get upset with the firefighters for saving the house but getting your furniture wet. But you have every right to be upset if there isn't, you know, a review of the sprinkler systems or the brush being cleared around the house after the conflagration. And you and you, you know, we've now had twice in 12 years a rescue of the money market mutual funds, at least some of them. Uh, you had a rescue this time of, of ETFs. And so if you don't make the changes during the good times, uh, then you do kind of create a moral hazard going forward. Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people camped here, ransacked my computer. And I, I got people threatening me. I got this and that, but I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's rebel billionaire on the slow newscast, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. 
And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Yet I hear most of the blame, not not to the Fed spending money and encouraging people to buy or corporate debt, but those last stimulus checks from the from that Congress passed that Biden wanted the fourteen hundred dollars. I hear the those blamed for inflation a lot more than I hear about anything else, really. And I wonder. Yeah, Nick, come 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 down with the with the view from the mountaintop. Disaggregate inflation for us. How much of it is COVID <laughs> supply shocks? How much of it is fiscal? And how is much fiscal? of it is there, there are going to be some great uh, PhD dissertations and NBER research papers. And I look forward to, I mean, look, Canada's inflation rate was 5% in January, right? Uh, Australia has inflation at 30-year highs. Theirs is a little bit lower. It's at about three and a quarter percent. In Europe, it's around. UK is off off the charts yeah, so, right now. So this isn't, you know, this isn't a, a U.S. only story with high inflation. And I think that sort of should color both how we read the pandemic response, but also our concern about what we do going forward. In some ways, it would actually be more comforting if you were only seeing high inflation in the U.S. Because then you could have some confidence that eventually we would import. The, the disinflation from the rest of the world. You know, a, a couple of questions I have. So was the our pandemic response itself to blame? And, and that, you know, on two fronts, on the public health side, did we do enough to actually suppress the virus so that people could have comfort that they could go out and engage in commerce or employment the way they would before without getting sick? And how much of that has kept people out of the labor uh, market? You know, were things like politicizing the wearing of masks helpful? Probably not, right? And then you look at the difference between the U.S. response to creating that bridge to get people across to the other side of the pandemic, whatever that looks like, uh, with other countries. You know, in the U.S., the we really relied on the unemployment system, insurance system, and on PPP. So we spent a lot of money to just keep households flush with cash. And if you look at some of these charts in aggregate, you know, there was more money after the pandemic than there might have been if there had been no pandemic. Europe, the charts look completely different. There were more of these furlough schemes, right? There was wage insurance, uh, wage replacement, not full replacement, not at 125% of what you were making. And perhaps there's less scarring in those economies because you preserved the employee-employer relationship and you maybe didn't have as much, you know, job separation. So I, I still think the jury's out on that. But, um, you know, I yes, the stimulus checks and J- Jason Furman, the former Obama administration economist, has made that point. Put one log on the fire at a time instead of putting all of the logs on the fire. That's his critique, I think, of the of the American rescue plan and the stimulus checks. So tell me about Europe. You mentioned the ECB earlier. How's the inflation situation looking in Europe and and how is the European Central Bank reacting? And obviously, when it comes to things like monetary policy feeding into through the exchange rate channel, like if the if the Fed raises rates much more quickly than the Europeans do, then that makes the interest rate on dollars much higher than the interest rate on euros. And so you get this kind of strengthening dollar 
And that makes it harder to for Americans to export. It makes it cheaper for Europeans to export. And so, you know, you get all of those kind of channels to, to monetary policy. So a big part of monetary policy isn't just the nominal where you set interest rates, but also the relative difference between your own interest rates and Europe's. So where are Europe's interest rates right now? And how's inflation doing? And how are they looking at exactly the same problems that Jay Powell is looking at? Well, I think one of the differences between the US and Europe is that if you look at uh, kind of output or demand or employment, uh, they haven't fully recovered, right? So the challenge the Fed was looking at in the middle of last year was, gee, what if we are short of our employment goal, but we're over on our inflation side, and so our mandates are in conflict? And, you know, Europe, the ECB doesn't have a dual mandate, but to the extent you're looking at an output gap uh, or, you know, full employment, uh, Europe's probably not as close as we are on either of those. And so I think that makes things a little bit more difficult now that you do have this higher inflation in Europe. You saw Philip Lane, who's the chief economist to the ECB, give a very interesting interview earlier this week to a German newspaper where he suggested they may have to raise interest rates sooner. Now, this was a day or two before the war began, and I'm not sure that, uh, you know, kind of with all these high-frequency developments, how uh, how the war has changed that. But uh, you do see more alarm or concern, I think, that maybe the high inflation in Europe will require a policy response. You know, the other thing I, I paid some attention to is just where, you know, people talk about uh, yields in the U.S. being artificially depressed, right? The Fed has artificially depressed yields. And whether or not you agree with that, I I take some, uh, you know, you look at where yields are in Europe. And if you can get a negative yielding, you know, uh, bond, uh, does that make a 2% treasury in the U.S. a little bit more attractive, even if you think the value should be, the yield should be higher, right? So to what extent has uh, have these other um, economies kept maybe a ceiling on treasury yields? And if the ECB does normalize policy faster and you do see higher yields in Europe, could that create more room for yields to rise in the U.S.? I think that'll be, that could be an interesting question. Uh, in the in the months or year ahead, I have a very basic and elementary question about inflation that I would like to raise because I think about it a lot, um, and I thought about it again reading Neil's piece today. But like everyone hates inflation, no one likes prices going up. I just complained for five minutes about my oil bill, very unbecoming of me. But like the economy is doing really well. Like I've never read about. Uh, the U.S. job market in my time as an adult being this good. Like you, you can get, a, everyone can get a job now. You get a job and you get a job. And companies are like desperate to hire. They're doing all kinds of great stuff for workers that you very rarely see them do. And like talking about employees' well-being, like what even is that? Like is inflation really that bad if it's doing all these great things in the job market? It seems like it's fine. Like we didn't have it for a really long time. So we have more than we used to. Like, so what? Does everyone just need to relax? That you're you're so Gen X. I swear to God. Like, <laughs> this is this is an amazing like the we Gen Xers just have this tiny, tiny sort of atavistic memory of of 1970s and it what didn't probably wasn't that bad but like we can half remember inflation whereas like the millennials have 
never experienced inflation and that they're like this is the most terrifying thing in the world i don't i like run screaming anytime you mention the i word and then the boomers are like i really remember inflation that was terrible and so like you get the, this kind of barbell thing that the young and the old both are super in, afraid of inflation and i think we gen x is the only people who aren't afla- afraid of it i see also we should make this a gen x podcast like we need to just make it official <laughs> and slate money gen x or something i mean to, to Emily's point, my colleague Josh Mitchell had a piece in the journal this week uh, about why the boom hasn't raised spirits, right? Why are people so unhappy when objectively the economy looks good? And he quoted in the piece, and I thought this was interesting, Bill Galston, who's at Brookings now, but he was the issues director for the Mondale campaign in 1983. And he said, we haven't been in a period of inflation politics for 40 years. Inflation isn't just uh, an economic phenomenon, it's a psychological one in politics because it's a psychological proxy for things being out of control. And reigning in inflation is seen as a sign of leadership uh, because whoever it is is getting life back under control. And so maybe that speaks to some of the unhappiness that that people have right now. Yeah, I mean, you're right. You can you can get a job, but you go to the grocery store and you go to get, you know, cream cheese, and the whole section is even like the the yuckier flavors that you never like to buy, right? They're all gone, right? Or you go to the you go to the coffee shop and the, the sign says we're closing at noon today because of a staff shortage or because you know too many people are out with COVID. So it may just be that you know we 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 want to have it all, right? We want to have be able to get a job, get the great uh, raise, and also you know not have to deal with some of the the yuckier. Yeah. Like- the guy in that story, there was like some guy complaining about high prices, but he was like relatively affluent and he was complaining like, he, I think it was like he couldn't get like a helmet or something for his motorcycle. It was just like, and then he he was complaining about the price of a dozen eggs. And it's kind of like me complaining about oil prices. It's like, he can afford the eggs if they're 88 cents or $1.49. Like, it is very psychological well, we, and it doesn't We want all the benefit track. of the low cost that the just-in-time supply chain enabled. But then when- you know, there's a disruption that's that that's in part because we have these very finely tuned supply chains. We're we're unhappy, so maybe you just can't. We're win. so spoiled. I mean, you can't. But that win. was that so was my spoiled. early take on inflation. When inflation started picking up, I was like, "This is wealth redistribution from the rich to the poor. This is basically, you know, the people who used to serve us ice cream, you know, are now getting paid fifteen dollars an hour instead of nine dollars an hour, and the ice cream becomes more expensive, but it's good inflation because it means that we're reducing inequality and we're paying, you know, low earning hourly wage earners more money. And so, yay, you know, we might feel a bit uncomfortable about it, but it's it's a good thing. When it comes to like, well, actually what's happening is we're paying Russia a whole bunch of billions of dollars for natural gas so that they could invade Ukraine, that's bad inflation. That's like no no good can come of that, quite literally. All right, Nick, I'm going to ask you in Slate Plus about, I'm going to pick up on something you you said about the twice in the past 12 years where we had a major money market crisis. And this is something I really want to ask you about. So that is coming up in Slate Plus. But before we get there, I think we need the numbers round. Emily, do you have a number? Yeah, I have had so many different numbers. And and then I just decided I'll do this one. 2.8%. That is the percentage of workers who said they were retired in January 2021 who are now back in the labor force in January 2022. 
the unretirees, which I'm low-key obsessed with unretirees. If you want, you can email me if you are an unretiree. So the COVID pushed a lot of older workers out of the job market for kind of obvious reasons. Maybe they were laid off. Maybe they didn't want to get sick and die by working or and stuff like that. And they also pushed down, COVID also pushed down the unretirement rate, which apparently not everyone just retires and like walks off into the sunset. Some people retire and then they're like, you know what, maybe I want to work at Target or Home Depot or like do some consulting or whatever. But those rates kind of dropped in COVID and now they're, they're picking up and that seems like kind of a good thing. Like, I don't think it's a matter of like old people feel really poor and have to go to work. Unretirement is is kind of awesome. We saw it a lot in the 90s boom, in the dot-com boom, that there was just so much demand for for jobs that people would come out of retirement and take a whole bunch of jobs. And everyone said, yeah, this is good. So Emily, are you gonna are you gonna call that the un the unresignation, the mild unresignation? <laughs> I should have done that in my lead. I kind of thought about it and then I was like, you know what, I'm tired of the great X. Like I don't I'm not saying it, but maybe I should have. The great unretirement. <laughs> not everything has to be great. My number is four hundred and eighty one, which is one of those wonderful Zillow numbers. It is it is the number of cities where according to Zillow, the typical home value is now $1 million or greater. Wow, 481. 481. Now, their definition of city is small. So like 75 of those cities are in like the broad, like New York metropolitan area. But still, it's, you know, the place where you live, where the typical home is a million dollars, it is no longer, well, of course it's a million dollars. You live in New York or San Francisco or, you know, Miami. It's now across the country you can find those places. It's very, very normal. Things have changed from when Nick and I first met and he was covering the housing crisis and was like running around to places where all the houses were empty and foreclosed upon. It's crazy to think about. Yeah, we were writing about peak to trough declines of 67% in Las Vegas. I mean, it, you wouldn't even believe it now. I'm pretty sure Las Vegas is on that list. I need to look it up. Nick, what's your number? My number is 65%, and that is the increase in the level of the average U.S. bank account balance for low-income households since 2019. So the J.P. Morgan wow. Chase Institute you know, tracks this. Uh, they, they break it into uh, quartiles, and so that's the bottom 25%. Now, granted, that is a large percentage increase for a low number. We're talking about an average balance of under $1,300. Um, and it's down from, it was even higher, it was 125% last March after those stimulus checks, the last stimulus checks went out. But still, I think it it speaks to the strength of the household balance sheet through the crisis that we've had. Um, there was a New York Fed survey this past week. It's It has a relatively short history, eight or nine years, but it showed income and spending growth expectations or their the highest levels of that survey and the probabilities of missed loan payments are near record lows. So, you know, I think this has helped, like, nobody likes the inflation that we have right now, obviously, but just a completely different type of recovery from what we saw 12 years ago. Yeah, it's good. It's good stuff. Can we finally put to bed one of the most annoying memes in, like, populist financial journalism where people trot out the percentage of households that couldn't make a $400 emergency purchase? Yes. Yes. I would love to retire. What is up with that data point? It needs to... It's it's, such a dumb data point. It never made any sense, but it makes even less sense right now. As Nick says, like the typical checking account for a member of the bottom 25% is $1,300. So let's just like 
stop talking about that $400 emergency, please. Nick, that's uh, our task to you. Please don't mention that $400 emergency number ever. Uh, Noted. <laughs> thank you for coming on the show. It's been awesome having you. Thank you for um, having We me. are, as I say, going to be talking to you on Slate Plus about um, money markets. We love all of you guys emailing us, slatemoney at slate.com. Many thanks to Shana Roth for producing. And we'll be back next week with more Slate Money. Also, most importantly, how do you pronounce yourself? Timoros, but just say it with authority. However you say it, if that's the if you sound like that's how it's supposed to be said, I will not be offended. The worst is when people go, uh, 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 did I get that right? So just Timoros, however is easiest for you to say it with authority. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at Chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's Chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.